this morning. You have to know what Steve told me when he whispered in my ear when he was walking down. I own you. <laughs> because we had this thing going uh, as we were roommates. And I, some of you that are roommates have these little games going throughout your time here. Uh, who can burn who the best, you know? <laughs> and so we have it going back and forth. And he got me at the when we did the homecoming thing. And then I got him at our wedding and the little brochure that we handed out to everybody. And So I guess you're one up on me now, Steve, huh? All right, just wait. I know where you live. But truly, it is, it is a privilege for me to be here with you guys this morning. I, I can't tell you in words what, what an honor it is to stand up here uh, really in front of the students of my alma mater. And uh, I don't think the Master's College is just any college. I tell people... Um, with all truth in my heart, and I, and I also tell them I'm, I'm unbiased when I say this, but the Master's College is the premier Christian college in the nation. Do you guys believe that? I, I hope you do, because through my experience here at the Master's College, I realize uh, now, that I, as I look back, I don't know that I truly appreciated it while I was here, but I look back now and see all that the Lord did in my life here at the Master's College, and I'm just so eternally grateful to God for raising up a school like the Master's College that's so committed to, to making young people conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Amen? And uh, I tell you what, I mean, I just got such fond memories. Those, the ones about Steve being my roommate isn't one of them. No, I'm just kidding. Mark, Mark, that guy that was the oddest person you ever met that you roomed with, I think that was Steve, okay? I know when I roomed with him, but, but I appreciate Steve. No, I'm just joking. It, it's true. Steve, one of, the, one of the fondest memories I have is, is the roommates that God gave me. And the Lord always was gracious to give me wonderful roommates, guys who stimulated me to righteousness and helped me to be more holy and godly. The Lord was gracious to give me my wife here at the Master's College. Um, it took me a while to get it through my thick head, but the Lord was very gracious uh, to give me my precious wife, and now we have a little baby boy, our first child. And so uh, I'm just so grateful for the Master's College. I learned what discipleship was at the Master's College. It might sound funny to some of you, but honestly, when I came to the Master's College, I didn't have a clue what discipleship was. I had always heard about it, but I would never seen it put into practice like I have seen it put into practice here on the Master's College campus. And so I had the privilege of being discipled by godly men like Mark Catlock and, and Dave Maddox and others, and was, had the privilege of discipling other young men. And really, it's the, it has become the heart of our ministry down at Grace Community Church in the Student Ministries Department in the high school, with the high school students. Discipleship. Discipling young people. And uh, it's great to see some familiar faces out in the crowd. Some of you came up and said hi. Those of you that serve on our high school staff. And if you, if you will, just for a second, let me give a little plug for, for our high school ministry at Grace. I can't think of a better opportunity for you to, to be involved in ministry while you're going to college than working with high school students. Uh, it's just dynamic to be able to, to learn stuff in the class and immediately go and apply it that afternoon or that night with students. And to pour your life into some young people who are really going to make an impact and a difference when they get older. So if you're not involved in a ministry or you're still praying and looking for one, uh, talk to some of the people that are on staff down at Grace and, and, uh, or come talk to me afterwards. We're just looking for some godly people. I don't care if you're gifted. I want to know that you're godly. And if you're godly, I want to be able to give you the opportunity and a platform to disciple some, some high school students, guys or girls, depending on what gender you are. Okay, guys, don't think you're going to come and disciple girls. We won't let you, okay? But anyway, uh, it is a privilege and honor to be here, and I appreciate you guys uh, being kind to let me come this morning. Well, since the beginning of time, 
It's been a part, a constant part of human life. Every person that has ever lived and that ever will live has to deal with this. It affects the greatest of men and the lowest of men. It affects the strongest and the weakest. It affects the smartest and the dumbest. It affects the richest and the poorest of men. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you go. No place is safe from it. And no one can hide from it. It relentlessly pursues us, all of us, wherever we go. People have tried virtually everything to avoid it, to resist it, to run from it, to protect themselves from it, and even punish themselves for it. But every one of us, at one time or another, have given into it. What is it? Temptation. Temptation. Now, I got a question to ask you this morning, and I'm not going to come around with a microphone and, and get you to confess to everyone. But I want you to think right now to your mind, what is your toughest temptation? Right now, think about what is your toughest temptation? It may be mental, it may be uh, financial, it may be sexual, it may be um, uh, emotional or relational. What is your toughest temptation? In other words, that stubborn sin that constantly battles against you, but you never seem to be able to win over it. It's that sin that nags at you daily. And for months, and maybe for some of you even years, you've tried to overcome this. You've tried to stop many times. You've gone to God and you've begged Him, God, please deliver me from this temptation, from this sin. It seems like you've gone to Him countless times and, and confessed it and repented of it and, and purposed in your heart that you would never do it again. Can you guys relate? Got that toughest temptation? And so, for some of us, we enjoy a time of victory for a time. But just when we think we finally mortified that, that tough sin or that recurring sin, we've killed it for the last time, all of a sudden it comes raging back with a, with a strength and a fury that seems like it's greater than it's ever been before, and we blow it again. That's a tough temptation. And I would venture to say that this morning some of you are right in that situation, in that temptation that I've tried to describe for you. And you know what? I think it's causing you to despair. I mean, it's frustrating, isn't it, to fall into Satan's trick, the same trick he uses on you every time, and you, you continually fall into it, or, or you continually step in that same snare that Satan places out there for you and do it every time? It's frustrating, isn't it? It's sapping your spiritual vitality. It's destroying your communion with God. It's weakening your relationship with other Christians. It's making your ministry ineffective. And it's hindering your witness and your testimony to the lost people around you. It's probably not only causing you despair, but it's also causing you to doubt. Causing you to doubt. You may have begun to believe that this is just the way I am. I'm going to just have to live like this the rest of my life because this is just the way I am. Some of you have honestly begin to wonder if it's really possible to overcome this temptation. Or you've begun to, to really honestly lose hope of ever gaining victory over this stubborn sin. Well, I've got good news for you today. There is hope, you guys. There's hope. There is hope that you can, can gain victory over that tough temptation, whatever it is. 
there is hope. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is probably one of the most familiar verses in the entire Bible, but one of the most forgotten verses when we're faced with temptation. It's probably one of the most often memorized and most often quoted verses, but sadly enough, it's one of the most often unapplied verses in the entire Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let's read it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as we open up your word. And Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, I would ask now that your spirit would take his sword and confront those of us who need to be confronted, that you would comfort those of us who need to be comforted. But most of all, God, that you would conform all of us in this room into the image of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Countless books have been written and countless sermons have been preached about how to overcome temptation. You may have heard or read a lot of those yourselves. But in just one verse, right here, Paul very simply and very practically summarizes everything that you and I need to know about overcoming temptation in this one verse. And before we look at this verse... I just want to set the context very quickly for you because that's the only way that we can be sure that we're going to interpret this accurately and apply it appropriately to our lives. So just let me set the context just a bit with you. For those of you that are familiar with the the letter to the Corinthian church, the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul was addressing here in this latter section, he's addressing some of the, the problems, some of the practical problems in the church in Corinth. The Corinthian Christians, as you know, I'm sure had been saved out of a pagan religion. And they were enjoying this newfound freedom in Christ. When we get to chapter 8, and chapter 9, and chapter 10, Paul reminds them that while they're exercising this new freedom, they have to apply certain principles, particularly as it applies to eating meat offered to idols. And he basically gives them two principles. The first principle is avoiding... You need to avoid offending people. The stumbling block principle, right? You guys are familiar with that. Don't be a stumbling block. And number two, he says... You need to avoid disqualifying yourselves. And you guys know that real well, I'm sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul gives his own example. He says, But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be, what? Disqualified. So he says you've got to be careful about disqualifying yourself. And then we get to chapter 10, and what he begins to do is he begins to illustrate this principle of disqualifying yourself. And he uses the nation of Israel. And in verses 1 through 10, he shows how Israel abused their freedom and fell into sin. And he gets down to verse 11, and he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, Paul says to the Corinthians, These Israelites serve as examples to you and I so that we don't forfeit our usefulness by abusing our freedom. And then in verse 12, he gives a very strong warning 
to the Corinthians against their overconfidence and over, uh, against their pride. You see, the Corinthians thought that they could handle their freedom. They're eating meat offered to idols and they're walking around going, I can handle it, I can handle it. And they were prideful about that. And so in verse 12, again, a familiar verse, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, if I were the Corinthians, if you were the Corinthians, I would naturally wonder how in the world I was going to be able to overcome the temptations and the sins that Paul has just described and just illustrated so powerfully. I think Paul understood that, and so what Paul wants to do now, he wants to assure them that they don't have to fall. He wants to assure them that they can overcome every temptation. And so he comes to them and says, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. In my opinion, this is probably one of the most encouraging verses in the entire Word of God. And specifically in this verse... Paul presents three promises that give us hope that we can overcome every temptation. Let me say that again because that's really going to frame our thought for the rest of the time together. In this verse, Paul gives to you and I three promises that give us hope that we can overcome every temptation. In other words, Paul gives us three promises that you and I can claim when we come face to face with that tough temptation. And these three promises assure us that we can have the victory over it. You say, what are the three promises? Well, here they are. Number one, no temptation is remarkable. No temptation is remarkable. Number two, promise number two, no temptation is unbearable. No temptation is unbearable. And promise number three, no temptation is inescapable. No temptation is inescapable. Let's look first of all at the the first promise that Paul gives to us. No temptation is remarkable. Look at the first part of verse 13, the first phrase. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. I want to look at that first word just for a brief moment because it's very important to understand the rest of this passage, the rest of this verse, to understand that word, temptation. He says, no temptation. The word temptation means to test, to try, to prove, literally to put to the test. That's what a temptation is. It's to put to the test. Now this word is a very interesting word in the Greek because in the English word for temptation, okay, you look up Webster's Dictionary and, and the English word temptation always has what kind, of te- what kind of connotation? A good connotation or a bad connotation? Bad connotation, right? It means a, a seduction to evil. That's what the English word for temptation means. But you see, the the Greek word just simply means to test, to try, or to prove. It's kind of a neutral word that can mean either trial or temptation. And the way you know if it's a trial or temptation, the way to translate it is the context that you find it in. If you find it in a bad context where it talks about evil, then you know it's talking about a temptation. But if it's it's more of a good context to talking about... uh, maybe the, the pressure that's on you and, and, and different things in your life, you could say it's a trial. So a positive context is a test of faith and a negative context is a temptation to sin. I think the best 
place where you go to illustrate this is James chapter 1. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that chapter 1. And we won't turn there, but I'll just read you in James chapter 1, 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you counter various what? Trials, right? And then later on in verse 13 it says, Let no one say when he is what? Tempted. See, in the same context, there's two different translations for the same word. And it just goes to show that there's a very important distinction that we have to understand between trials and temptations. Trials are from God. Temptations are from who? Satan. God tests people to strengthen their faith. Satan, excuse me, God tests people to strengthen their faith. Satan tempts people to weaken their faith. Every time you and I are tempted, our faith is literally put to the test. Our faith, your faith, my faith is put on trial. It's put on trial. We can see this illustrated all throughout the scriptures. First, we can look at the nation of Israel. And uh, when they were standing at the edge of the promised land, standing on the side of the Jordan River, ready to enter the promised land, Moses, in Deuteronomy, was reviewing the last 40 years of God's faithfulness in the wilderness. And listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 8, chapter 2, about trials and temptations. He says, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, listen, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see, when you and I are tempted, just like, and, and put through trials like happened to the nation of Israel, we are being put to the test to know what's in our heart, whether we'll keep God's commandments or not. It's a test. Job is another perfect example. God wanted to prove his righteousness, right? He said, hey, have you noticed my servant Job? What does Satan want to do? Satan wanted to prove his unrighteousness. Oh, the only reason why he serves you is because he's got a cushy life. And you protected him and all this, given him all this stuff. See, God wanted Job to stand. So he said, hey, check out my servant. He wanted him to stand in the face of Satan and teach Satan a lesson. But Satan wanted Job to fall and to teach God a lesson. Jesus is the same way. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, right? Matthew chapter 4 or Luke chapter 4. God wanted to prove his righteousness. Satan wanted to prove his what? His unrighteousness. God wanted him to stand and Satan wanted him to fall. You see, trials and temptations are like two sides of a coin. That's the only way, the best way I can, in my simple mind, I can understand it. That it's like two sides of a coin, trials and temptations. Listen carefully. Life is full of trials that can quickly and easily turn into temptations. In other words, every trial has the potential of becoming a temptation. And really, it all depends on how we respond. That's really the decision, whether a trial turns into temptation, is how we respond to the temptation or to the trial. I'll never forget a story I heard about a salesman who went into a very uh, wealthy, very big contractor, uh, well-known contractor, and he was going to give him a bid for the supplies to provide the materials for this huge project that he was working on. Very expensive project. And so he, the contractor invited the salesman into his office and they chatted for a few moments. And the secretary came in and asked the contractor to come out in, the, in another office to do something. And so the salesman was in there alone in the office and he noticed on the desk was a bid from his competitor. And he could see all the numbers clearly written out of this guy's bid. And you know how a bid works. The one who bids lowest usually gets the contract. However, he looked down the, the contract, looked down the bid, and the very bottom line, the last number 
on the contract, on the bid, was covered by a little orange juice can. And he thought for a moment, but he couldn't contain his curiosity, and so he very quickly lifted up the orange juice can, and when he lifted up the orange juice can, BBs came out, thousands of BBs came out from the bottom of the can that had been cut out. And they flooded all over the desk and poured all down over the floor, all over the floor. Without saying a thing, the man put the orange juice can down, left, and never returned. Why? Because he had failed the test. That contractor had tested him, and he had failed. See, he was in a trial, but the way he responded, it turned into a temptation. I say all that just to help you remember that when you're faced with a temptation, all it is, it's a test of your faith. It's a test of your faith. It's a test of your loyalty, your allegiance to God. Or very simply, it's a test of your love for Christ. That's what a temptation is. Erwin Lutzer in his helpful little book, How to Say No to a Stubborn Habit, he says this. He says, our response to temptation is an accurate barometer of our love for God. It's an accurate barometer of our love for God. In other words, you and I can't truly say that we love God until we've had to say no to persistent temptation. See, sometimes we think of temptation as just this really bad thing, but you know what? It's a great opportunity. It's when, you, when, te- when you're tempted, you know what? It's a wonderful privilege. It's a wonderful opportunity for you to show God how much you love Him. Do you view temptation that way? That's what God would have us view temptation as, I believe. Well, let's look at back at the text. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as a common to man. That word overtaken is an interesting word. It just literally means to hold fast in its grip. It, it gives the idea that something chases after you and catches you and grabs a hold of you and tries to control you. That's how temptation feels sometimes, doesn't it? That it just grabs a hold of us and it's controlling us and we can't get out of it. He says, hey, no temptation has overtaken you, has grabbed you. That is such, but such as is common to man. He says that tough temptation that you're dealing with, he says it's, it's, it's nothing but, it, but it's common to man. In other words, it's not uncommon. It's not extraordinary. It's not remarkable. No temptation is remarkable. That's our promise. What you are dealing with, what, what's got a hold of you is only normal and natural. This is encouraging, you guys. No, no, not one of us in this room ever experiences anything that is special or unique as far in the way of temptation. Not, not one of us in this room ever faces anything that's a special or unique temptation that only you have to deal with. That means you and I can never say, well, you just don't understand. You just don't understand my situation. Oftentimes, I'll be talking with students about how it's going with their parents. And they're having a real hard time obeying and honoring their parents. And I'll say, you know what the Bible says? You need to honor and obey your parents. And you know what they say? Oh, you don't understand. You don't understand my parents. My parents are different than every other parent. They're so strict and they're, they have so many rules. And I said, the Bible says no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. In other words, you're not facing anything unique or special. And so you need, just need to obey Scripture. Be encouraged. You see, all men at all times have had to face the same basic sins. I think if I was to go around with some kind of portable mic and ask you guys to be honest and share your toughest temptation, I think honestly we'd, be all, we'd all be amazed at the similarity 
that's sitting in this room. The similarity of, of the situations and temptations. Now, sure, no situation is exactly alike, and, and uh, you know, every circumstance is a little bit different slightly. But the point is that the root problem, the root problem is the same. There's only a few basic or a few common sins that we all struggle with. They're just wrapped in different packages. A bunch of different packages out here this morning. But the same basic root sins. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, 1 John 2.15 makes that real clear. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the, the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, so what's the world? For all that is in the world. Note that. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John summarizes all that is in the world into three categories, three common sins. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. You see, all of us face the same temptations. Adam and Eve face the same temptations that you and I do. The nation Israel faced the same temptations that you and I do. The Corinthians, they experience the same temptations as the students at the Master's College have had to deal with and are dealing with. It's encouraging to know that others are dealing with the same temptations as you are, isn't it? I'll never forget having breakfast one morning down here at the Saugus Cafe and I sat across from a, a booth with a booth in a booth with a guy and uh, he was just dealing with some sins in his life and he was just wanted to hold himself accountable and so we both wanted to do that so we both kind of shared our hearts about things we were dealing with and it was like he was reading my mind and I was reading his mind it was like it was identical and by the time we were all done we were so encouraged it wasn't like we had patted each other on the back and justified our sin well you do it too so it's okay no but we are so encouraged to know that, you know, he's dealing with the same thing as I am. And you know what? I'm going to be praying for him. He's going to be praying for me. And we're going to do this thing together. I'm not all by myself dealing this all, all by myself. It's encouraging. And you see, that thought should make us stand firm. Some of you probably have this verse memorized, 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, what? Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone... To devour. Now listen to the next verse. Sometimes we forget this one. But resist him, firm in your faith. Why? Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You see, the thought that others have made it through the same temptations should motivate us to resist the same temptation. Others have made it and so can we. You know, this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is probably one of the verses that I use the most when I have opportunities to counsel families in our ministry, parents and, and students alike. Because it's so encouraging. And when somebody comes into my office uh, for counseling, I think one of the primary things they need, apart from the truth of the Word of God, is they need hope. They're coming in with a problem and they're depressed, they're despairing, they're doubting, and they need more than anything else that first time. They need hope. And this verse gives them hope. And you know what I say to parents? They tell me this, maybe some parents are dealing with a rebellious kid that's just out of control and just totally disobedient. And so I ask the parents, tell me the situation. And when they're all done, I've never not been able to say this yet, and I hope it never is true, but I always am able to say, you know what? I don't know about you, but I'm really encouraged about this situation. And they're like, didn't you just hear what I said? But I said, you know, I'm encouraged, and this is why, because I haven't heard anything new today. I haven't heard anything different. 
I said, what I've heard, what you've explained to me and expressed to me is very common, very natural for teenagers to go through. Not that they're justified in doing it, but it's very natural. And many, many parents have dealt with students, with, with, with their children like this, and you know what? They've won those kids, and those kids have come to Christ, or those kids have repented, and those kids have followed Christ and have been used greatly for God. So I said, I'm encouraged by that. Because it says, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. I often have opportunities to counsel young men in our ministry that are struggling with their purity. And they come to me, and you know, you can tell when they, when they set up the appointment or something, they say, Ken, I really need to talk to you about some stuff. And I can tell right away they're dealing with their purity and their holiness just because they're embarrassed about it. So they come in my office, and, and I can tell they're, they're hemming and hawing, and they're, they're just, well, this is what, and I can tell they're not wanting to tell me everything, but they're wanting to get it out. And so I just tell them, hey, stop, just a second, let me tell you something. And I tell them the, the situations, the temptations that I had to deal with when I was their age in high school, the, the lust I had to deal with, the pornography I had to deal with, um, just the issues of watching impure stuff on TV, the things that I had to, had to deal with when I was their age, the mistakes I made. And you know what? They take a whole different attitude after that. They're encouraged. Because I can just point to this verse and say, you know what? I know it's hard, but be encouraged because no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. I've had to face it. You're going to have to face it. Your son's going to have to face it. So there's hope. There's hope. He made it through so I can make it through. There's hope for me. The fact that he knows what we're going through should give us confidence and should encourage us to approach him with confidence. So you see, you guys, the promise that no temptation is remarkable gives us great hope that we can overcome every temptation. Amen? Let's look at the second real quickly. No temptation is unbearable. No temptation is unbearable. Look what it says in the second part of verse 13. And God is faithful. Literally, faithful is God. Faithful is put first in the original language. In other words, Faithful is being tried, the, the, the writer, Paul, wanted to emphasize faithfulness, God's faithfulness. This is the key to the whole passage, I believe, that faithfulness is the fact that God keeps His promises, that we can count on God. He can be trusted. You say, well, how does He demonstrate His faithfulness when we're tempted? What can we count on, on Him for? Look what it says. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you, you are able, and with every temptation, He's going to provide a way of escape. Those are the two things that you can count on God for when you're faced with that tough temptation. See, God limits temptation and trials according to what we can endure. He limits temptations and trials to what we can endure. Psalm 103.14 says, For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. You see, God is like a master potter working on us, and we're the clay pot. And He knows exactly how much pressure we can endure without breaking us and without ruining, ruining and destroying us. He knows. He'll never allow us to face any temptation that is more than you and I at any given point in our spiritual life can handle. Does that encourage you to know that? In other words, God touches everything that comes to us. Satan can't do anything he wants to you and I. Everything must go by God. It must first pass through the loving and wise hands of God. Everything must be inspected and approved by God to make sure that nothing comes to us that will destroy us. And Job is the perfect illustration of that. God will never allow the pressure to be so great that it is impossible to resist. In other words, there's no such thing as an irresistible 
temptation. The only reason why we give in is not because it was irresistible, it's because we didn't apply the principles of the Word of God and we chose to sin. You see, the promise that no temptation is unbearable gives us great hope that we can overcome every temptation. Let's look briefly at the third and final promise. No temptation is inescapable. No temptation is inescapable. Look at the last phrase in verse 13. He says, But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. The second thing we can count on based on God's faithfulness, is that there's a way out. God is going to provide a way out. And literally that word escape is the exit. With every temptation, He's going to provide the exit also. Now this could be understood in two ways. You could understand it as, well, for every temptation, there's an equal way out. With every temptation that comes, there's also an equal exit. I don't like to understand this passage like that because then it makes us like Indiana Jones who's running away from some temptation or, and the wall, or the walls are closing in on it, and we're looking around for the escape hatch, right? And we touch some at the very last minute, boom, we're out. And we're rescued. I don't believe that God deals with us that way. I think the better way to understand this is that for every temptation, there is one way out. In other words, every temptation has the same way out. You don't have to go look around for it, right? Because that's what we say. Well, what is it? Because I'm always looking around for it, and I fall into temptation. I go, well, I guess I didn't find the escape hatch that time. I'll, maybe I'll find it next time. No, God doesn't leave us to find those things out as a mystery. You say, what is it? What is the way out? Well, look at the last phrase of verse 13. That you may be able to endure it. In other words, it gives us the purpose of the result. He says, he's going to provide a way of escape, the, the exit, that you may be able to endure it. I think that last phrase tells us the one way out. It's endurance. To endure. To carry under. The way of, way of escape for every temptation is endurance. James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, the way out is through. Temptation is like a tunnel. The only way out is through. The only way to pass a test is what? To complete it. The only way to win a race is to finish it. James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres in the trial, for once he has been approved, or once he has passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James 5.11, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You see, God doesn't take us out of temptation. He does what? He leads us through. He leads us through. 2 Timothy 4.18 says, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed. Second Peter 2.9 The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. So you see, instead of trying to get out of temptation, instead of looking, trying to get out of it, ask God to help you go through it. To go through it. And prayer is the key. Prayer is the key. When the disciples asked Jesus to help them learn how to pray, He said, and... This is how you should pray. And do not lead us into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, don't let this trial turn into a temptation. Matthew 26, 41, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. You see, the promise that no temptation is inescapable gives us great hope that we can overcome 
every temptation. I trust you're encouraged this morning because the next time you face that tough temptation, you come face to face with that tough temptation, you've got three promises from the Word of God that you can bring to mind that can give you hope that you can overcome, that you can gain victory over this temptation. You just have to remember, it's not remarkable, it's not unbearable, and it's not inescapable. I want to close with a very short illustration. One of my favorite books that I've ever read is Pilgrim's Progress by the great Puritan John Bunyan. And in that story, one part of that, on the way to the celestial city, which is heaven, Christian and his companion go off the king's highway and they fall asleep on, on the property of giant despair. His companion's name is Hopeful. That's interesting. But they fall asleep on the property of giant despair and giant despair comes out and captures them. He takes them to Doubting Castle and he locks them in a dirty, stinking, rotten prison cell. And he doesn't give them anything to eat or drink. He beats them. And he even goes so far to, to, to get them to try to kill themselves because he says, there's no way you're going to get out of this thing alive anyway, so you might as well just kill yourself. And so Christian and his friend Hopeful get on their knees and they pray. And during the time of prayer, Christian realizes that all along, in his pocket, he's had a key. A key called promise. And he realizes that this key opens every door in Doubting Castle. And so Hopeful tells him, well, take it out and use it. And Christian says this, and I quote, What what a fool I am. I lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. And he took that key of promise and he opened every door, unlocked every door in Doubting Castle and escaped. You know what? Some of you are locked up in Doubting Castle this morning. You're in despair. And all along, you've had a key of promise. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Don't be a fool. Take it out and use it. And walk in freedom. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how practical it is. God, we thank You for the hope that it gives us, the encouragement it gives us. Lord, I pray that You would help me and these students overcome temptation. God, it nags us every day. And I would just pray that You would help us apply these three promises, that we would be faithful to show You how much we love You every time we're faced with temptation, that You would make us holy and pure and devoted to You more than anything else, that, Lord, You would be glorified through these students on this campus and that You would allow their testimony to resound throughout the entire world because of their love for You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.